Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Hello, this is Michael Dowd host of Post-Doom, Regenerative Conversations, exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. In this conversation, recorded in late July of 2019, my wife Connie Barlow and I, together, have a conversation with Daniel Dancer. This is one of the few conversations that I strongly encourage you to actually watch on YouTube, because Connie spent four days adding amazing visuals of Daniel Dancer's incredible work, Art for the Sky. We've titled this An Apology and a Promise. There are two previews. Here's the first preview. I don't know how much more grieving I have to do. Now I'm, I'm, I'm sort of past the grieving stage and just totally um, joyful that I have the realization of where we are as a species on this planet and, and it just heightens everything. It puts me in kind of a sweet spot of, of understanding and being able to appreciate everything to the max and kind of bless it and apologize and do all those things all the time at the same time with kids, with myself. Here's the second preview. I want them to look back on their experience with Art for the Sky and, and know that, oh yeah, I, he said that it was happening and maybe it'll make it a little bit easier. I don't know, but I love, I love working with kids. There's so much joy and innocence there. And I always, um, in the final assembly, I always apologize to them for the world that they've inherited from us, that we've dropped the ball. There's things that could have been done that we didn't do. And I apologize to them. And they also know that each image that's created is an apology to the earth and sky for how we've treated the planet and a, pl and a promise to do better. The conversation begins. Well, Daniel, delighted that you can be on this conversation with us. Of course, we've known each other for quite a few years and uh, we just you know, think the world of you and have been there in your home where we're seeing you. And, uh, but this conversation series in particular is quite different than anything we've done before. So what we're really going for here, as you know, is sort of the more heart, the personal, the story, your journey, your trajectory. How can your story be uh, helpful? Uh, yeah, helpful in some way. The first thing that we've been asking, and I'll sort of Connie, I'll really be taking the taking the, the ball from here. But you know, what does the word post doom or the phrase post doom even? bring to mind for you? And is there any other language that you found helpful in coming to terms with our predicament? Well, when I first thought of post-doom, I mean, post-doom, you're, you're accepting um, that collapse is imminent and fairly soon. You've accepted the collapse, it's coming, it's baked in the cake, the tipping points have been crossed. Maybe, like my metaphor was, it's, it's the bottom of the ninth, we're down, it's 10 to zero, the home team, 
it's two outs and yeah maybe there's some wild card possibility out there that could come in that we can't even you know but most likely it's going to happen and my my personal feeling is that you know maybe small pockets of humans possibly could survive but i, I think it's going to be you know pretty complete the collapse and as i mentioned in what i wrote i've always liked the baha'i's word for collapse is uh, the grand chastisement have you heard that before oh that's great isn't that a good one that is great I sometimes refer to it as the great reckoning. Planetary reset, you know. Connie and I make a pretty big distinction in terms of this whole idea of hope uh, between human-centeredness and life-centeredness. I have life-centered hope big time for the planet. I totally trust the arc of evolution and our little part in it. You know, when we're gone, whatever's coming, it's going to be for the greater good. I have total trust in that, yeah. Very soon after this point, we stopped the video component of this conversation and just went to audio. The bandwidth wasn't enough. So from here on out, I'm pasting in pictures over the top of the pure audio we have here. And as it turns out, I would have pasted in a lot of these pictures anyway, because Daniel's a professional photographer, especially of environmental art and his art for the sky presentations and artwork on the ground seen from above uh, with elementary school students all over the United States is just a perfect opportunity for me to show a lot of what his art has been. So back to the conversation of July 2019 and I'm editing it a year later, August 2020. Daniel, a, a couple things really intrigue me about having you on this program. One is that virtually everybody else I can think of that Michael's invited thus far is an author, a blogger, a writer. They're working basically with adults. You're working with kids. I'm afraid. I'm afraid to be with kids anymore with this perspective because I don't feel I can be authentic in your art for the sky. It's just, you've been doing it since I think 2000 and I've been watching on Vimeo the videos, little five minute videos of each of these elementary school classrooms you go into where the kids themselves do the mathematical measuring, there's an animal being created, they're wearing color, the color of the t-shirts in order to make that animal appear and it's, it's this joyful event. So uh, Help me understand a little bit about the trajectory. Did you start your art for the sky? You've been doing a lot of professional artistic photography and writing arts in the previous decades, but you're still working with kids. How does that, how does that go for you? And what was your trajectory from starting art for the sky into where you are now and you're still working with kids in such a joyful way? Well, that's a good question, uh, Connie. Um, you know, my book that you read, Desperate Prayers, used to be Shards and Circles. You know, that was all the solo work on my own, um, creating art from found materials, putting prayer into form on 
ravaged ecosystems as a way to appeal to the mystery for some kind of healing and maybe mainly just a way to apologize for my species for what we've done. Wow. And so that, um, that's what I did for a long time. It was a solo endeavor between me and the earth and what I found and, and then sharing those stories first in earth first journal articles, and then eventually in the book over a course of about 12 years. I began art for the sky when I went back to visit in Kansas and talked to, um, ran into a kid that was in one of a very early project with uh, crop artist Stan Hurd. You know, when we, he was one of 500 kids that performed as beads on the headband of a 25 acre Indian film from the sky. I and saw a photograph of that. It's, it's on your website and it's right. awesome. It's awesome to it, see the beginning. He said it was the only thing he remembered from elementary school oh. and said it helped him get a sense of the big picture. Whenever I'm feeling insignificant, you know, I remember that image, um, how I was a part of this big, amazing hole that I couldn't see uh, wow. close up on the ground. And so that ignited something within me to take it, to start doing that in school. So if that was the only thing he remembered, then yeah. I should be doing this in schools. And so, so that's how it began. And um, it became more and more an emphasis on for the sky with a capital F-O-R, for the sky and educating kids about how we need to change our relationship with the sky, that it's obsolete, it's leading us over the edge. We've got to change our relationship with the sky. And um, I started working with Bill McKibben a little bit and putting the number 350 in a lot of uh, projects midway through and to educate kids about that number being the ideal, of course, parts per million of carbon that scientists have determined the safe level if we want to continue life as we know it as a species. And then um, I started putting the current number and using the art as a way to track what's happening with the climate. And I first, I think the first time I put the number in, it was 390. And I put the number in almost every project. And I often forget, and the kids remind me to put the number in. Wow. And so, so they're very um, open and curious about, yeah, the planet's got a temperature, you know, it's a easy, it's a real easy thing to, to talk about with them. Sure. And <laughs> Well, I, I, let, let me just say, I, I saw that just two months ago, uh, one of the latest places you were, I think it was Lawrence, Kansas, where you had yeah. a, a picture of the indigo bunding. Right. Uh -huh. and, and 415, right. where we are now, uh, right. it was small, but it was there on the twig that the bird was hanging on to. Right. So you're, you're telling me that I don't have to be afraid of mentioning climate change to kids because they get it. Well... It's how deep you go with it, you know. I want them to know when things really start unfolding um, in a big way, which could be any time. I mean, with all the fires in the Arctic right now, my God, you know, yeah. out burning out of control and the temperatures in Alaska being, I mean, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. It, could, it could accelerate at any moment, and, but it is going to be accelerating at some level. Um, I want them to look back on their experience with Art for the Sky and and know that, oh yeah, I, he said that it was happening and maybe it'll make it a little bit easier, I don't know. But I love 
I love working with kids. There's so much joy and innocence there. And I always, um, in the final assembly, I always apologize to them for the world that they've inherited from us, that we've dropped the ball. There's things that could have been done that we didn't do. And I apologize to them. And they also know that each image that's created is an apology to the earth and sky for how we've treated the planet and a, pl and a promise to do better. Oh, that's good. So, wow. so wow. that's why, that's why I work with kids because the kids, they go home and tell their parents yeah. and I tell them to tell their parents, tell them about this number, tell them about what's happening, you know? And, and, and so I reach a lot of kids, thousands and thousands of kids every year. You know, the average school size is probably 500 and sometimes 1500. So 20 projects in a year, at least that's a lot of kids that get, yeah. that get the info. So yeah, there's always a ton of joy there, even though I doubt whether they'll be able to live out their natural lives. And that's a pretty, it's pretty tough, but, yeah. but uh, it's all the more reason to bring joy, to give them joy and to celebrate the sky and our need to change, you know, and even if they're never able to really implement it, at least they'll understand that somebody told them that it's fucked up, you know, and we need to change. Yeah, not exactly that language, but I'm sure somebody right. told them that. Well, the, but let's 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 get the story here. In 2000, you weren't apologizing to the kids already, were you? Oh yeah, I've always apologized to the kids for the kind of planet we've left them. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh! So okay, so you've been on this trajectory for a long. long I've been on this trajectory time. since I was maybe nine years old because my dad, you know, he was a biologist. Um, a big, a strong environmentalist. He taught one of the first environmental studies classes in California at a small college. And so I've been steeped in environmental problems, the human impacts upon the earth since the very beginning. And the first big word I learned how to spell when I was a kid was apocalypse. Oh, wow. I, was really, I was really proud of it. And all the reports I did in school were on overpopulation, deforestation, global warming, probably in high school, you know. Because uh, all those things we knew about all those things. So, and how I'm, old are you now? Sixty-eight. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, yeah. so I've accepted it forever as long as I can remember. I just figured. I just saw a growing pyramid. You know, getting ever closer to the top with all the problems that we face that human caused problems on the earth. You know, from from deforestation, overpopulation. That was a big one for my dad. Paul Ehrlich was his hero all those things peaking and peaking and peaking and now we're almost to the top. And I just, I always thought that I would live to see the end. And I always wanted to live to be a hundred because I thought that's what it would take. And, and I'm still on that same path. So it's, I've never, I've never diverged. My grieving about it has been incremental from, you know, from ever since I was a kid, you know, and all the environmental photography that I've done over the years, you know, mostly deforestation, but, you know, all the photographs I gathered for um, the Doug Tompkins overpopulation book. You've seen that one, right? Oh my yes. God. Not only did we see it, but we, yeah. we actually ordered, it. yeah, we have it and we ordered extra copies and gave them away. Say something about that because that's such a, 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 a connection. I mean, that book itself was dedicated to, to William Catton's overshoot. Right. That's right. And, and that book overshoot, I read that when I first became an earth firster, you know, Dave Foreman, um, 
talked about the book uh, and you know I read everything that Foreman was one of my heroes back in the early days of Earth First and that's how I got turned on to that book that and Paul Shepard and Gary Snyder and all those people I got turned on to way back then but but Doug Tompkins was because we he was a personal friend and I worked with him a lot he was a huge huge influence um, on all of this and he's the one that turned me on to Guy McPherson Dr. Doom that's what he called him <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that, uh, Daniel, that was the first time I actually realized that you were not only on the doom scale, but you'd been on it longer than Michael and I just really 2012. I mean, we knew about climate change, but I thought it was going to be slow. You yeah. know, it's going to take a long time. But then when it's like you travel, we travel when we overlapped in Phoenix last, last spring. Next, I was doing something in the kitchen in the apartment we were living in at the retirement center for Protestant clergy where Michael had some talks that he was giving. Next thing I know, you two are doing a Skype call with Guy McPherson. And well, not, like, not even not even Skype, I just have Guy's phone number and I just right. called him on my cell phone. Yeah, yeah. That was April 2018. Again, that was in Phoenix. I'm gonna clip in here a 40 second excerpt. I actually took a video of it. So here it is. Exactly. 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 That's just evil, and that's where evil comes in. I think you know if we don't do that. And 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 uh, one of the things Daniel reminded me of is a quote uh, of Gary Snyder's about that. You know, we, we're in danger of losing our danger souls. of losing our soul. You know, uh, souls, that's, yeah. yeah. Have you ever heard that be quote before, guy? No, that's from uh, Practice of the Wild. There's a really great paragraph if you Google that. Um, Michael did it yesterday. We're in danger of losing our souls. Gary Snyder is an incredible paragraph. Yeah, I'll, I'll actually send you the link to the exact page I, I found on Google Books. All of these times, seeing you at one of the Art for the Sky projects in Washington State, you're such a joyful person. I never knew that I could talk with you about this level. <laughs> I just never knew it. No, you totally can. I've been, because I've been there for so long, and I'm so comfortable there and talked about it i mean i don't talk about it with very many people so i love it when i can open up like with you guys and we can actually have these conversations because yeah and with doug of course i could really have him um with him he was uh he was he was quite a force and and you know so over the course of a couple of years gathering thousands of pictures of the human impacts on the planet and picking out the best of the worst, basically the worst's greatest hits, which is what that book is. That, that, that um, is yep. And if you know, there were some that were just—I did a lot of grieving when I did that book. That's for sure. And I don't know how much more grieving I have to do now. I'm—I'm I'm, I'm sort of past the grieving stage and just totally um, joyful that I have the realization of where we are as a species on this planet and, and it just heightens everything. It puts me in kind of a sweet spot of, of understanding and being able to appreciate everything to the max and kind of bless it and apologize and do all those things all the time at the same time with kids, with myself. I just want to mention to anyone listening to this that the book that's being referenced is Overpopulation overdevelopment overshoot and it is a coffee table book with the most stunning photos and so daniel the fact that you were the person who really uh went through 
countless photos, narrowed it down to these and had these included. I mean, that there is no tool that I am aware of visually. And plus, there's just not too much text in the book, but there's enough to really get the flow and the story and, and the, the, the feel of it. But the images themselves are so compelling, so large, so stunning. At any rate, overpopulation, overdevelopment, overshoot. Um, and it's filled with great, great quotes to go with yes, each Yes, it image. really is. So thank you for your role in that, brother. No, you're welcome. That was something. Now, yeah. Connie doesn't have the benefit of uh, the, uh, your email where you, you know, mentioned that you'd given some thought to these questions ahead of time, and I do have that in front of me. And I wanted to ask you about this desperate prayers. Uh, say more about that. Well, that's, that's the title of the book that you guys were – it used to be called Shards and Circles. I was just explaining what these eco-mandalas were, and I just oh, used right. the words. They're like a desperate prayer. Okay, you know? oh, okay. That's what it is. They're, yeah, they're desperate yeah, yeah. prayers. And you could say each art for the sky image is a desperate prayer as well, you know? Now, I'd, I'd like to mention one of the things that I find, again, this is really surprising because I've run into you so many times. Last, last time before Phoenix, uh, we overlapped in northern Alabama, and you helped me pull privet in right. the forest. Yeah. You know, and so so we've done a lot together, but I just wasn't aware of this level. And part of it, let me just read a few things that you have on your website for schools that are thinking about bringing you in to work with their, their kids on another Art for the Sky. And you call them giant living paintings made of people. And you say, each sky art creation begins with an intention to make the world a better place for the creature we embody on the field, to be kind to our schoolmates, to always do our best, and to begin a new relationship with the sky. And then you go on and you talk about, in a real philosophical way, but just using ordinary language about how important it is to have a view of the whole that if we look at our problems, it's just this little problem or this little problem. We don't get it. And so right. you're, you're talking about, and you have a hand signal on the, with two fingers on the third eye. It's so right. cute that kids do. Put on your sky sight. Right. And, it's, and so you're giving them, without them really being able to understand the full picture of this experience when they're just like in fourth grade or something, but as they age, they start to look back on that and they understand what a holistic view is. And that's why Michael and I love the word predicament that mm -hmm. we learned from William Catton in his overshoot. And anytime anybody talks about a predicament instead of a problem, we know they've read overshoot or been influenced by someone who has. Mm -hmm. And that's where you really, when you step back, you can get what you've had all your life because of the unusual upbringing you've had which also included being a kid in, in the back country of what, Sequoia National Park, uh, Kings Canyon, one of those places. Oh yeah, my dad, you know, I, th I was conceived in the Redwoods. And, there you go. And yeah, and so my dad took us there a lot. And, so, I mean, you were in a way made for these times in that it, I think it I might was, be said, you know, you can, you can tell your life story in a way that makes sense and gives you meaning for what you're doing now. So I, I think one of the distinctions is for the part of finding the gift so that we're not just, you know, down in the basement, you know, just feeling depressed and everything, 
is you're very fortunate that you get to do the kind of work that even though you hold this sense of what's going to be happening, you're still giving the kids something, something that they're going to remember their whole lives, something joyful in the moment, encouraging fun cooperation. So parents get involved, giving you photographs they've been taking, and then you put it into the little five minute video at the end. And yet you're also knowing you're helping them prepare for a time when life isn't going to be fun. And, and giving so, them a big picture. And giving them right. a big, big picture. So Well, part of the big picture thing actually came from you, Michael, when you quoted um, Immanuel Kant saying, and I don't think you remember saying this, but... No, I do. Oh, you do remember it. Yep. For peace to reign on earth, humans must evolve into new beings who have learned to see the whole first. I, I mean, I, I say that over and over again, yes. five, five times during each visit to the school that we have to quit seeing things, the parts, we got to see the whole, you know? And, yeah. And, I mean, I still agree with that, except I no longer think peace on earth is possible. No, I don't <laughs> no, either. no. Well, let, let me, but, let me, yeah. uh, I want to quote here. Um, your website, uh, art for the sky is so good. Let me exactly along those lines, but in kids terms, Tim's terms, I like to hear you write, we need to learn to see through the eyes of all beings and through the eyes of future generations. Right, that's right. I mean, that's it, that's it. That's what it essentially means to step out of human-centeredness, anthropocentrism, exactly. to right. life-centeredness, ecocentrism. And I just wanted to comment on one thing you, you said about joy, how could I have this understanding of what's happening and still be in joy? Well, I'm sure you guys are familiar with Wendell Berry's Mad Farmer's Manifesto. I was just about to ask you about that. So when I came upon that, that just made it okay to be joyful. Well, that's what he says. Be joyful, though you've considered all the facts. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Practice resurrection. That little, that little group of words this is what I live by. It really let is. Me, yeah, let me let me say that uh, a little slower because I, I thought that was brilliant that you had that in there. I've only seen it once before and I'd forgotten to write it down. So again, this is Wendell Berry. It comes from Mad Farmer's Manifesto. Be joyful, though you've considered all the facts. Expect the end of the world. Laugh. Practice resurrection. Yeah. I love it. Practice resurrection. I've always thought that was the perfect bumper sticker, you know, or just <laughs> a perfect thought. What is that? And then you could, you could spend a lot of time talking about what that actually means, you know, but yeah, it's just, it's Wendell Berry. He's one of my heroes for sure. Yeah, truly. One more uh, quote that I want to give from your webpage that I think it's what you're teaching these kids, whether they get it or not, it's working for me as a grown up. or <laughs> reading what you got there. You have, the experience of being the art, and again, that's because the kids are, are they get from thrift stores these colored t-shirts uh, and put some, some things on the ground, but they're wearing them. And then all together they get into their spot in this animal creation giant thing on the school football field or whatever it is. And you've got a crane up there, borrowed from the fire department, looking down or drones looking down and they all get down and they um, they're kneeling with their heads down so that it's the color of their back that you see hundreds of kids creating this image and then what you write of it 
the experience of being the art and then releasing it, art that leaves no trace, is a lesson in impermanence. Impermanence rocks. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's like those uh, Tibetan sand paintings. They're exactly, so yeah. gorgeous. And yet part of it is letting go, not grasping. And so the kids doing that, having joy, and then of course they do get to see the video afterwards. So that's a little bit of a gift in there, not yeah. quite impermanent. The permanence aspect is, is it's a preview, not only of our own temporal lives that we have, our own ultimate death, but it's a preview of collapse, you know, too. And so maybe it's like a trial run, you know, of these species that, that we create, often endangered, that they embody. Well, you know, they're probably not going to make it through, through the collapse. And so it's a blessing. It's, it's, a, it's a, a preview. It's a celebration. It's an apology. It's lots of things. Yeah, yeah, that's great. In fact, that leads me to where I wanted to ask you next, because in your response, just by email to the question about how uh, the big picture, the universe story, epic of evolution um, uh, inspires you or what you found helpful, uh, you write, and I'm going to uh, quote you here, and then anything you want to elaborate on. The epic of evolution is full of beginnings and endings. It is driven by such. Extinction of species is, of course, commonplace, and we seem to be on the path to join other species that have graced the world before and along with us and disappeared. Our term here appears to be vastly shorter than many other species that have come and gone. To believe that we are separate or somehow immune to this evolutionarily, ev evolutionary manifest is simply misguided. I have been fascinated by the rise and fall of civilizations before us some of which flourished far longer and more successfully than ours, which being aided by the burning of fossil fuels appears destined to bring down the big curtain on our species and many others. The commonalities of the psychological, societal, political, and biological constraints that have taken down so many other civilizations are totally present now. The main difference now is the worldwide epic scale of it all. Yeah. Anything, anything further you want to say about that? Well, That's great. Daniel wrote that? Yes. Oh, my gosh. Why are we talking here? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, that, well, that's why I wanted to get it This has been great. This, I know, no. This is great. I love to get it both ways. That is really Well, I'm awesome. looking over my bookshelf, The Collapse of Complex Societies, you know, and sure. I've been fascinated with, because I grew up with the word apocalypse right front and center, I've been fascinated by the collapse of other societies before us, you know, one after the other, after the other, after the other, what happened and trying to figure out, you know, are we doing anything that's different? And what's one thing that's really interesting to me, because I've always really been fascinated by synchronicity, but there was a, um, a Chinese, I can't remember which dynasty it was, but it was the longest last, it was like almost like 900 years, the longest lasting, um, society, civilization, culture, whatever you want to call it, dynasty. And it was ruled by synchronicity, by casting turtle bones that were inscribed with different markings, kind of like a precursor to the I Ching, casting those bones for decisions that political decisions, societal decisions that the emperor would make, they'd always cast the turtle bones. That wow. was the longest lasting society. <laughs> Is that fascinating I love it. or what? Yeah, that's fascinating. 
<laughs> I'd, I'd like to return to this uh, point. We haven't heard anybody talk about it before, but it's really central to uh, one of the things that I want to explore. And so I'm glad you raised it. And that's the fact that, that you do not a sarcastic apology. I sometimes do that when I'm talking to younger generations because I'm scared to say it, but you do serious apologies to elementary school kids. And the only other time I've seen that was David Holmgren in Australia, co-originator of permaculture. He's gonna be on this series too. Uh, last year, but I only saw it this year, he wrote Apology to the Grandchildren. And oh, it was yeah. it was a litany, and I felt I felt I was saying it. He put into the words what I'd been feeling. Um, you know, I apologize for this. We and and the thing that I find fascinating about it is, I've always been a good doer. I want to do what's right. I don't want to do what's wrong. I don't want to get yelled at. I don't want to feel guilty. But there's something about knowing that my cohort, my cohort. It was the last to have, a, a, at least in Western society, you know, of the class and race I am, all that kind of stuff. My cohort was the last as children, obviously not you, but for the most of us, to, to just believe in the perpetual, you know, growth everlasting as secure as gravity is. Yeah. And then we were, we're the generation that had the most decades to be able to, while we're in power, pursue solutions to this quote predicament and we didn't do it and so for me having feeling I'm it's not my personal but it's my cohort and I'm as guilty as all the rest it makes me feel better it, it lightens me to admit that and that's a weird thing because if I ever have to you know admit that I'm guilty in breaking a glass or forgetting to get the laundry out, I feel bad. But why do, why do I feel good in admitting that I'm guilty? Probably because you release the burden that, that you may be carrying around or, yeah, or the guilt yeah. about it and, and express the obvious. And when I say it and a kindergartner hears that, it probably, you know, it doesn't, it probably doesn't mean anything, but a fifth grader, a fourth grader, a third grader, the older kids, you know, they're gonna, and the teachers, you know, I mean, I'm talking to the teachers as much as I'm talking to the kids. And so, because the teachers are what continue the story of Art for the Sky and, you know, process it with the kids when they go back in class and they watch the film. And right now I have, I have so many of my projects now are repeats that the schools have me back for the sure. second, third, fourth time. I mean, I have so many repeats now. And so that tells me that the teachers and the principals, they're finding the message valuable, you know, and, and um, that's a good thing. But apology, yeah, more and more, that's central to, to what I'm doing. Well, well, the one thing I do know about um, your visits is that when I was talking with you at one point, for some reason, when the schools are coming up with an animal they want to portray, too many cougars. Yeah. Been, you put an embargo <laughs> on cougars. My experience with fireflies this last couple of weeks. I got to do a firefly. Do a firefly. I do want to do a firefly. Yeah, yeah okay. That'd be great. Good, good. And what would be the emphasis? How would you what How would you talk about that creature? What What, what would the What What would be What would the kids be thinking about in terms of their relationship with that creature? If they were doing a firefly. Yeah. 
Well, how are fireflies doing overall? Uh, they were incredible here this summer. So I don't know why. Not, they're not part of the insect apocalypse at this point? Not yet. I don't not think. yet. I'd probably talk about the fact that insects are diminishing everywhere and so far the fireflies are immune and they carry a bright light and it's a great metaphor for you know what we need to be in the world you know i'd, I'd probably talk about it in, in that kind of a sense sure. wow wow well um if and bleaking off and on would be really cool too because they could they could have on yellow shirts and then they if they um, stood up, then it would blink, and they'd go back down, and then there would be yellow again. They stood up, so you could actually. Oh my God! And then you do it in video, fast forward, all kinds of things you could do. It'd be cool. I'm gonna oh, do. Oh man! Okay. It's on my list. All right, Daniel. When you do that, send me you an email with, when the video. Yeah, up. we'd like to come. Yeah, yeah. I, when the video's up, I really want to see it. So, Daniel, uh, I noticed in the email that you sent where you really wrote some very thoughtful things about your responses to these questions. And one of them you actually had in three paragraphs on gifts, uh, where we posed the question in coming to terms with the cascading problems of overshoot, resource depletion, climate breakdown, et cetera. Have you encountered stages of grieving that went beyond mere acceptance and what opened up for you positively on the other side? And so however you want to respond to that, just off the cuff, or if you want to read your own, because what you wrote was really great. Why don't you read, why don't you write, read it? I don't have it in front of me. And then I'll see if I want to add anything to that or maybe it's. Okay. I'll read, I'll read one paragraph at a time then. Okay. So this is your words. My grieving has been incremental and almost built in ever since I was a kid, given my father's influence. As an environmental photographer filming in so many ecosystems ravaged by mankind, I have grieved quietly in each and every one of them, and at the same time found the small beauties that often existed within them. I'm frequently guided by the notion that, quote, death is the mother of beauty, unquote. I've grown to see that perhaps it is great good luck and a blessing to be one of the very small percentage of people cognizant that we are living at the edge of an apocalyptic tide about to wash over us. Ever since I first heard it, I've been quite taken by the old Irish prayer, may you be alive at the end of history. I've pondered it often. Why is it considered a prayer and not a curse? While the end of history feels different than the actual end of all human life and many other species on earth, it still opens a special portal on the climate crisis and all the rest that appear about to peak in my lifetime. If it's a blessing to be alive at this time, then it speaks to a special responsibility we have as knowing witnesses to the end unfolding. To wallow in grief is useless. I learned long ago not to torture myself over the things I have absolutely no agency in able to control. Nor is party like it's 1999 an option if we have any compassion at all for the massive suffering about to tangentially increase on earth. The high likelihood of a grand chastisement about to descend on us perhaps helps tether us to the sweet spot where an appreciation of life rises in a way and to a height only available in the presence of endings. Hospice workers sometimes discuss this, and now all of humanity and so many species are essentially in hospice time. I wonder what else is available to us within a full embrace of our predicament. Last few sentences. Taking a big picture, long view of it all, perhaps one can trust 
that what will rise in one or 10 or 100 million years out into the future and detritus of the human project might be just a very good thing, perhaps the best thing for all concerned, who knows? To live and say goodbye within that question while celebrating at every turn the beauty and blessing of having been alive on earth feels like my highest calling at this supercharged moment of human evolution. I guess I'll let that stand. <laughs> <laughs> that, I mean, was, that was so beautiful. My eyes are watering. Thank you. Thank you. For yeah, that. it would have been better had you had the damn thing up on your own computer so you could read it. So I didn't no. know. I love, I love listening to you voice. read it. Okay, right. all right, sweet. Okay, go. Good. You're, you're a professional narrator, Michael. <laughs> well, it really is. I'm so grateful that you um, that you really gave the thought, the time, the energy to to craft out beautiful sentences and paragraphs on these responses because there's a place for well crafted language. I mean, there's a place for spontaneous sharing from the heart too. But uh, I'm glad we were able to experience both of these in this conversation. All right. Well, th I think that's. A question for your list of questions is what is how you ended that what else is available to us with the acknowledgement of our predicament you know yes. what that that's a huge thing and that's probably why you're one of the motivating reasons why you're you're you want to do this series right I'm guessing very much so yeah Tell me what do you do when you're lost in the woods or you got a special problem in your neighborhood. You can't see the forest for all them trees. You get your sky sight on, it's in you and me. It's so easy to be wrong when you're stuck on the ground. The earth seems flat, but she's really round. There's a very good way to understand. You get your sky sight on every woman and man. Get your sky side on. Get your sky side on. Get your sky side on. Keep it on your whole life long. Thank you for listening. For the videos of all 75 of my post-doom conversations, as well as other post-doom resources, visit postdoom.com.